fight. Three, two, one. Welcome to Arcade Attack. <laughs> A retro gaming podcast for up to four players. Sonic Boom! Welcome back, listeners and even viewers, if you're watching us on YouTube. I've got another amazing guest on today's podcast. We've got Howard Scott Warsaw. Truthfully, someone I've wanted to get on the pod for a number of years, actually. And a true retro gaming legend. I can't wait to uh, talk to you about his past and his work on Atari. And he's got a great new book out as well. It's called Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Almost Destroying an Industry. I mean, usually I'd say that's, that's a crazy title. You can't say that. There's not many people in the world that can say they've almost destroyed an industry. But Howard, <laughs> I think you're one of the very few that actually could have that claim <laughs> in a way. It's unbelievable. So, Howard, thank you so much for being here today. Oh, Adrian, it's my pleasure. Great to be here. And, uh, yeah, it's quite an appellation. Not everyone can claim it. and uh, I'm not even sure it's 100% true, but I think it's an excellent subtitle. It's amazing. And um, I, I don't want to sound rude. We're going to get into a lot of questions later. But you had quite a small... Not, you had a massive influence on the, the gaming industry, but you were only in that industry for a few years. Is that right? So it's not, it's not I was like you. Atari for four years. That's incredible, and you you left a legacy behind you. Absolutely incredible. Um, oh, thank you. That's very kind. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's was... let's start then, if you don't mind, with the first question. How did you first get into the video game industry? Were you a big fan of games before you got involved, and how did you get your your big opportunity? I was a big fan of games, but I really wasn't that into video games at all. I've, of all the people who went to Atari, I was one of the few who didn't really go there for games. Right. I actually went there for the environment and the type of programming we were doing, because I felt I was drowning at Hewlett Packard. And uh, I had lost the, the joy and the passion that I had for programming that I had discovered in graduate school. And uh, I found out Atari did the kind of real-time control programming that I really enjoyed doing under really tight constraints in a really challenging uh, environment. Also, it was a crazy and wacky environment because I was I was a real zookeist at Hewlett-Packard. because I was much more rambunctious and flamboyant than most people who work at Hewlett-Packard were. And uh, I heard that Atari was a place where things were a little more wild. Uh, I didn't really anticipate that I was going to be a zookeist there, too. <laughs> uh, I could really cut loose there and... And like I said, I mean, I did a number of groundbreaking things, I believe, because that was always my goal. I don't want to just show up somewhere. I want to really make a difference. I want to do something. And most specifically, I always like to do something no one's done before. And because uh, I always think in terms of what's not here as opposed to what is. And Atari was a, a brilliant place for me to go and, and do exactly that. And so, yeah, I was, I was only there for a few years, but I hope uh, some of the things that I did and some of the innovations that I created uh, lasted and inspired others. Yeah, no, I, I'd agree with that completely. I mean, how would you describe, when, was, when did you join Atari? Do you remember the exact date? Was it early 80s? Is that right? It was January 12th, 1981. That's really specific. I love that. What was it like then in those first few months? You said that 
you know, you heard it was pretty crazy atmosphere. And what what was it like, though, compared to your your previous job? Any any stories you can share, for example? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, there's a, a nearly a whole chapter in my book that's devoted to my first day at Atari because my nice. first day was unbelievable. Except I, by the end of it, I not only believed it, but I loved it. It was, it was an amazing experience because it started off with me showing up and going over to HR and getting, you know, like doing paperwork and in, in a very mundane way that any job goes. Yeah. And then returning to where I was going to work, where I saw people playing games and acting out in the hallway, people talking in strange languages, people talking <laughs> to themselves, actually. Really? <laughs> Nowadays, it's not unusual to see someone talking to themselves because a lot of people have cell phones with uh, very discreet uh, ear pods and things like that. So it's uh, someone talking to themselves now is almost a sign of status because they obviously have some sort of a cell connection. Uh, back in my day, it was uh, someone walking down the hallway talking to themselves was a sign of mental illness. So it was, uh, it was quite an interesting environment and... Uh, I guess one of the highlights of the first day was uh, during the interview process, uh, it was made clear to me that drugs were a big part of the environment, in particular right. marijuana. Wow. And so, uh, and I, I was okay with that. In fact, I wanted to be, uh, you know, a, a good guest, a considerate guest. So I brought a joint with me <laughs> on my first day, just in case. Yeah. And uh, towards the end of the day, uh, Todd Fry, the guy who did 2600 Pac-Man, uh, was that was the room I was first assigned to, and uh, towards the end of the day, he comes blowing into the room while I was reading some manuals, and slams the door shut and just takes a look at me and he says, "I'm gonna I'm gonna get high now, so if you don't want to be around this, you should go, you should just get <laughs> out of here." Todd is a very frank and blunt individual, yeah. <laughs> and so. And I said to him, I said, well, actually, I said, I kind of brought my own offering. I said, I'd be happy to join you. And he just took a look at me and he just, and he pulled out a bag with, of what looked like some pretty amazing stuff. <laughs> and he just said, he goes, no offense. He goes, but I'm going to smoke some real stuff. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he proceeded to roll up a fatty and uh, invited me to join him in that and I realized at that point I was going to have to up my game on many levels because he was indeed, he wasn't really the pot snob I thought he was at first. He was a connoisseur and it was, uh, I've spoken was quite an interesting yeah. first day at work. He's been on the podcast before. He didn't mention any of this, to be fair, if I'm being honest. But, I mean, the whole Sword Quest story I find unbelievable. I don't know if you were involved, he was doing that at that particular time, but, you know, that was unbelievable, wasn't it, part of gaming history? Absolutely. I was involved in some of the early conceptualization of it, but Todd, really, that was his baby, and he carried it through, came up with a brilliant design to cover four-game span on some very esoteric and broad-sweeping topics and themes. Uh, it was pretty impressive, you know, conceptually, where they were going, what they were trying to do when they added the uh, bejeweled uh, quest objectives. Uh, that was sensational. Yeah. But let's talk about your first game. Again, if I'm wrong, just correct me, Howard, but Yars Revenge, I think it was your first game, and it really did make a massive impact. Is that right, yeah? Um, You're how... right about that. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. Um, were you given full reign? Did you think of the game completely? How, 
how much freedom were you given? And, and can you give us some idea about the development of that game in your own words? So Yars Revenge wasn't Yars Revenge till the very end. Mm. What it was originally was an assignment uh, of a coin-op conversion called Star Castle. Mm. So uh, it's pretty widely known that I was supposed to do Star Castle. And I, and I had to beg my way into Atari. Atari originally didn't want to hire me. They had rejected me. They told me, you know, forget it, because they thought I was too straight to work at Atari, which was kind of, that became a very big joke later on, but <laughs> it wasn't that funny initially. But I did beg my way in, and I took a cut in pay and went on probation to uh, be able to work at Atari. And so uh, there I am on probation. They give me my first assignment after a day or two. And it's a coin-op conversion. I'd read the manual on the 2600, and I didn't know everything about it at that point, but I understood it well enough to realize that this was going to suck. This was <laughs> just going to suck. And I could not afford to have my first game suck. It was just super important to me yeah. to do something uh, really of note with my first game. So I went to my manager, and I said, I just told him straight out, I said, look, this, this is going to suck. I think this game is really going to suck on the 2600. The vector graphics game, and the one thing the 2600 does not do is simulate vector graphics well at all. And and the vector aspect was really integrated into the design. So I just said, look, this game isn't going to work, but here's something I can do. I can adapt some of the aspects of the gameplay and reconfigure it into something. And I, you know, I wasn't. I didn't just say I don't want to do it. I had a proposal for an alternate gameplay mm -hmm. that I thought would be kind of cool. And to his credit, he said, okay, go for it. So there wasn't a lot of freedom at that point. Uh, had this been six months or a year later, I don't know that I would have had that freedom. Right. But I was, it was just the right place, right time. It would, and so I was able to blow off a coin-op conversion and do my own game. And so I started creating the gameplay and the graphics and the animations and some of the, uh, some of the special effects that I thought would be really eye-grabbing. Because that's what I wanted. I wanted to do something that was a visual feast for sure. Yeah, And uh, what I had in, in, initially in the development was uh, really something that was eye-popping and was really horrible to play. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, uh-oh, this is, now I've talked myself into a corner. But, uh, and I go into this pretty elaborately in the book, the whole development of Yard's yeah. Revenge and everything. Yard's Revenge was, was an amazing story. I mean, the whole thing is a very elaborate story because... Uh, I, got, I did some consultation, and I got some uh, advice and made a couple of tweaks to the controller configuration particularly, which forced me to make a few changes to the gameplay. And the game that kind of sucked suddenly went crazy. Everybody loved it. It was like people in development, people from CoinOp would come over and play it, and they were excited about it. And that very rarely happens with the 2600 game <laughs> as you attract the eye of CoinOp developers. But... It was a great game suddenly, and so I was super excited. I thought, yeah, this is great, and it still didn't even have a name yet, but uh, there was some playability considerations, and so Yard's Revenge then went on to become the most tested game in Atari history wow. because it would go into a test, it would do very well in the test, and then people would say, well, there's still some problems, and this went on for months. So, and I had a condition that I call releases interrupted, where <laughs> I was desperate to release the game. I wanted to get my first game out in the world. That was so important to me. 
and I just couldn't seem to get it. They would test it. It tested great. And then, oh, we're not releasing it yet. I'm like, why? Yeah. And the whole naming, there's a whole story behind the naming of Yara's Revenge, how I created the name and came up with it. That's also done very completely in the book. Mm -hmm. It also reveals, one of the things I really go into a lot is the conflict between engineering and marketing mm. that went on. And that's one of the real highlights of, you know, because the mentalities were so different. It was very hard for engineering to understand the marketing people and where they were coming from because what they would tell us didn't make any sense. And I don't think they really appreciated what we were going through or dealing with because I think we looked like just a bunch of doofuses to them. So it was uh, it was a lot of conflict there that made for some good storytelling, but some uh, tough production. I mean, when it did come out, then I bet you were loving it. I bet was it was so the initial what was the initial ideas or the uh, thoughts of the game? Was it? I mean, it, it, it became one of the best sellers. I think it was the Atari 2600's best selling original game. Was it ever sort of touted? Was it ever forecast to be that successful? I mean, I'd love to know the, the well, initial after reaction. all the testing, yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, the final test that they did was what's called a play test, right, where yeah. they have over 100 people come in and play uh, my game against a target game and rate them both. And uh, the game they tested it against was Missile Command which was the best game on the 2600 at the point. I thought, damn it. You know, <laughs> this is what, I mean, on some level you say, well, if you're going to be the best, you have to beat the best. Yeah. And that's true. But I would have been very happy beating a crappy game and getting released and just getting the game out there. Uh, I was not happy about having to go up against Missile Command. Yeah. But at the end, when the smoke cleared, Yours Revenge beat Missile Command in the that's test. And yeah. that was the end of it. They released it. So everybody figured it was probably going to be a pretty good game. It even tested very high with uh, adult women, which wow. was a real shock because they were looking for game. I, that's another theme of the book is, you know, I really, they were trying to look, find games that appealed to adult women. And I produced a game that appealed to adult women. And, you know, as I like to say, appealing to adult women, that's something I'm always in favor of. So, <laughs> The idea that uh, my game actually appealed to that demographic was very exciting to me. Yeah. And then they advertised it principally for 10-year-old boys. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. That's marketing then, getting involved again, I guess. Yeah. It was weird. Yeah, I go into yeah. some of the conversations that I had with them, but it's just uh, it was just hard to uh, hard to figure out what's going on there. But yeah, it was crazy. There that's, was there any stuff in the game that you would like to have bought in or time committing or just the, the console wasn't powerful enough? Was there any, any ideas you were thinking originally you'd love to bring into the game as well? Or are you really just happy with the, pro the product you produced? You mean would I make modifications in yeah. it now? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. I mean, there were, I was pretty happy with the game that we put out. I would have more uh, sophisticated levels. Uh, if I were to go back to Yars, I actually have a Yars sequel design. I had uh -huh. it designed back then and never actually did it. And uh, it's still there. And uh, I think I may actually still do this game. I think there's some interest in the 2600 these days. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of homebrews out there. I may just team up with someone and make this game. This is the game that the Yars sequel that never really happened. Uh, oh, maybe yeah. it's time. And it's a very different, this is entirely different gameplay than what's in Yars Revenge. In Yars, I would add more leveling and increase the uh, difficulty ramp up. Sure. And uh, those are things I would do with Yars. But this other game is just an entirely different concept. But it is, 
it is a yard style game in that I think it's a frenetic switch fast action game because that to me is and we're with lots of motion lots of excitement and visually very uh very generous well i was going to ask you about that would you revisit and make a new game but would you so you wouldn't make a new game on like the modern consoles you wouldn't want to try and remaster it you would like a a sequel on the atari 2600 ideally so you're thinking how would you oh yeah no i would not redo yard's revenge i i'm not going to redo ep i'm not going to redo <laughs> yard's revenge I mean, I have no interest in doing that at all. If I'm yeah. going to show up, I'm going to do something fresh. I'm going to do Good something jam. new. Uh, yeah. Because I, my feeling is it's important to make a contribution. An elaboration is usually not a contribution. It's That's an elaboration. That's why they have a different word for it. So, yeah, nice. Fair point, yeah. You know, um, and so some people are good at elaboration. Some people are good at refinement. Some people are good at maintaining things or, yeah. or enabling concepts. Uh, I'm much more into generating concepts, testing them out, and trying to you know push them over the top so that they they make a splash. That for me, that's just what I like to do. Uh, but yeah, definitely. I mean, your your revenge huge success. You must have got a lot of pats on the back. Going wow, you you this is amazing. Howard, were you given a lot of kudos after the success of that game? Were you given a lot of freedom? Can you sort of explain that sort of feeling in the Atari offices just after the success of the Atari? Yeah, people were impressed with the game. Uh, One of my goals in doing my first game was to establish myself as as a credible and solid designer, Mm. and I think that I did that. Yep. So that was the best thing that happened. It was the idea that, you know, I think this game was my ticket into an established, you know, game producer on the 2600. And that that was absolutely one of my key goals in the mm. first game. You'd think it would be to make a good game, but actually making a good game was, was lower on the list. <laughs> <laughs> it was necessary, but not sufficient, right? I wanted to really establish myself and... And it did because I think this is what got me to be one of the first people considered for my next game, which was Raiders of the Lost Ark. Because yeah. it did come up that there was going to be a game for Raiders of the Lost Ark. They needed someone to do that. So uh, I think I was one of the first people, because of what I did with Yars, they said, why don't we give Howard a shot at that? And I went down and talked to Steven Spielberg and had a whole interview with him to yeah. see if uh, I would be the person who would do that. I mean, obviously, at the time, Raiders of the Lost Ark, I, te- correct me if I'm wrong, wasn't released as a film. It was just a conception. That it was the first Indiana Jones film. So it's a whole new sort of idea. Um, obviously, Steven Spielberg, even back then, you know, was huge, huge. I mean, what what yeah. was it like? Can you explain meeting him and getting the opportunity? And did you know about Indiana Jones before the, the game and stuff like that? Uh, well, I mean, I've seen... Uh, I'd seen the movie. I think oh, the movie okay. came out in '81. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah it was it was and, early '80s, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was uh, Spielberg is is just an idol of mine. Okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was the idea that I was going to work with Steven Spielberg was tremendously exciting. Okay, the idea that I was going to meet him was tremendously exciting. Yeah. But it's a funny thing of that when you meet your idol, if you just run into and meet your idol, you know, that's a, a, a huge experience. That's a big thing, and there's all kinds of weird stuff that can go on with that. But when you meet your idol because you're being interviewed by them or you have to 
do a, a job for them or do some work for them. Yeah. It's, it's a different thing because it's like this exciting opportunity to meet someone. It's also a job interview. So usually, you know, when you just run into someone, you meet your idol, it's exciting to meet your idol. Uh, but you don't expect to be rejected by them. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. When you go in to get interviewed by your idol, there's the idea that I get to meet my idol and potentially I could get rejected by them. And yes. that's a, a different kind of experience. So it's... Uh, so I was kind of aware of that, but I was mostly focused on doing a game, and it was an amazing day. That's another huge story in the book. But suffice it to say, I had an amazing day uh, at Warner Studios, which culminated in uh, an interview with Spielberg. Because when I first showed up at 9.30 in the morning, and I took an airplane to go to make it to this location, so... Uh, and then when I show up, and I have return reservations to fly back, and they tell me, oh, by the way, we had to move the interview. I said, oh, well, when is it? They said, oh, six hours later. <laughs> <laughs> what? But it, it, turned into a, it turned into an amazing opportunity to have some fun there. And when I did finally talk to him, we played Yars Revenge together. I wanted to show him what I've done already, and he, he kind of dug that. And then we talked for a while. And then I, uh, I called him an alien. I explained to him, and this was before E.T. was a thing. Wow. Right? He had done close encounters, but I just told him, I said, you know, I have this whole theory about how you're an alien, how you're actually an alien, <laughs> and uh, would you like to hear it? And he's like, sure. And I, and I laid it out, because I did have this whole theory yeah, about yeah. how, you know, the aliens are going to come to Earth, they need to culturalize the planet to get us ready, and he was part of their production arm. And I, and I said, by the way, you guys are doing a great job great job <laughs> so, and i do think that uh i think that's what got me the opportunity to do the game Good job. between yars revenge and calling him an alien i think we <laughs> formed a bond that uh yeah and so i was definitely the designee to uh do the first movie to game conversion ever that's an that's an incredible accolade isn't it? there's not many people that can yeah say that um I mean, how do you refer or reflect back on Raiders of the Lost Ark now? I mean, it's it's, it's your second game. Um, how do you are you proud of it? Are you happy how it went, worked out? I'm pretty happy with it. I mean, like I said, I always want to innovate. I want to do something yeah. different. So with Raiders, you have to remember that. So I was doing an adventure game, mm -hmm. and an adventure game. Warren Robinette did adventure. He did the game adventure, and that was a genre defining work. I mean. Adventure was a true breakthrough, like yeah. killer app kind of kind of product. So, and like I said, I don't like to do elaborations. If I'm going to do something, it needs to be a contribution. So, how do you how do you innovate on adventure? So, I thought it needs to be the biggest game experience that anybody could imagine on the 2600. That was my goal. I got extra memory. I got up to 8K, eight whole K. <laughs> yeah, wow! Think of that to do uh, to do a game, and so I made some choices to make it huge to have a lot of different environments. I mean, there are people who do games that have a lot of screens. There are games that have more screens than Raiders of the Lost Ark, sure. but they look the same. They're, it's obvious how they did you know so many screens by doing the same thing with slight variation over and over and over. And I tried to do authentically different environments with different gameplays and things like that and tie them all together. I wanted to create something huge. I even did something 
you know, when you try to make breakthroughs or you try to do innovative stuff, you don't always make great choices. Right? No, <laughs> you know, you live by them and you die by them. And I yeah. had, I used two controllers in Raiders. Yeah, I used amazing. both joysticks because I wanted to give the player more control, more sophisticated control of inventory, which is something you never really saw in a, in a 2600 that's, game. That's, yeah. But, uh, you still got to move around. So what I did was I required both controllers. But the thing is, most people, if you just plug a controller in and, you know, player one and you start running around, you figure that's the only controller you need. And anybody who tries to play Raiders with just the one controller is going to totally fail. Yeah. So, so I'm going to share my reasoning process with you. So yeah. this will give you an idea of what goes on in my head when I'm making a video. So I thought... I don't want to trick the user into a false sense of security, you know, having them think that uh, the game is all set when they're missing 50% of their capacity and control. So what I did was, you know, you have the player one stick and the player two stick, right? And most yeah, yeah. people are used to picking up the player one stick. So I made the player one stick the inventory control stick, and the player two stick is the motion stick. So if you if you just yeah. use the player one stick, you can you can move stuff in your inventory, but you can't move the character, and people would have to know there's something wrong with that. Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah. I mean, or now some people think there's a bug in the program, and that's problematic. But what I was hoping was it would lead people to the RTFM acronym. I don't know if everybody's familiar with that. But no, guys, read, yeah, please. Read the blank manual. Right? <laughs> yeah, good. Very good. RTFM is something we use a lot in technology and stuff. Yeah. You know, if there's an issue with the product or we don't know what to do, no, RTFM. <laughs> so, and yeah. the thing is, if people do that right away, they're going to find out. And it even says on the box, I believe, requires two joysticks. Yeah. So a lot of people don't pay attention to that. And so, and this was a tough choice, right? This was, this was definitely a choice that I made. Because there was a saying at Atari that was easy to learn, tough to master. Nolan Bushnell coined that phrase. It's called the, the I think it's called the Nolan law of video games. Right. Which is, you know, a game should be easy to learn and difficult to master. Yeah, and yeah. that's a really good rule for coin-ops. Right? Yeah, yeah. For a coin-op game, you need people to feel they can engage the game right away to put a quarter in but you want them to keep putting quarters in and not have mastered the game for quite a while. Mm. So easy to learn, tough to master. It makes a lot of sense. But whatever people, if you think about it, home games are a secondary medium to arcade video games, right? Mm. Video games originally were the arcade cabinets, and that was a video game. The home games were a secondary kind of a thing to that. So whenever you have a secondary or a next level, you know, the subsequent media, the first thing they do is they copy the successes of the previous media. And if you think about it, all the initial VCS games were, for the most part, copies of coin-op games. Yeah. And that's what we did. And, it, and that went on to be something that went on forever, right? I mean, it's one of the first things you want to do with a home console is deliver the arcade experience. Of course, that was absurd on the 2600 because well, the 2600 yeah. was an old static technology. And coin-op games get better with every every release so when they first came out you could do a few coin op games with it but it became rapidly very difficult to replicate and even with yards revenge there was that problem the cinematronics game of uh star castle 
was a vector graphic game. And I knew on the 2600 I was not going to be able to deliver that game. It just wasn't going to make any sense. So I adapted, you know, to do something that was that made more sense on the console. Yeah, and yeah. I was someone who did have that freedom. So that was cool. So the thing is, with Raiders, uh, I wanted to do something huge. And but oh, I'm sorry. So I was on the easy to learn, tough to master. So the thing is with a with a, with the home game, you don't have to get someone to entice them to put in quarter after quarter after quarter. They put all their quarters in at once. Right? They yeah, buy completely. the game. That's all the quarters they're ever going to invest in that game. But I figure they're also motivated to get value for that since they already paid. It. So you can ask more of a player because easy to learn, tough to master is great. But you know what? If you can go tough to learn and tough to master, you can make a deeper, more challenging yeah. game. So I decided to try that with Raiders, with all my games. I mean, yeah. Most of my games, you need to know something from the manual to really be able to play the game. Mm. And, and as a kid, I never wanted to read anything. I used to make models all the time, and I never used the instructions. Yeah. To me, it was a failure if I had to look at the instructions <laughs> to model together. So, But... I just felt I wanted to make a deeper game, and so I'm going to have to ask a little more of the player. And for people who were willing to go ahead and take a look and learn a little more, mm. you know, from the manual. And also, this is pre-internet, right? Yes. Another, cool. another major factor that's going on making those games is that there's no internet to go and find cheat codes or find playthroughs or to go and get advice from other people. This was all word of mouth. And so I actually had an argument with marketing over the fact they wanted to put a lot of the secrets of the game in the manual. They mm -hmm. wanted to have spoilers in the manual and put spoiler alerts and stuff before spoiler alerts was even a thing, right? <laughs> and so, and I used to argue with them, but they won, and they because no, it was going to be really hard for people to work their way through the game without any help or any hints, right. because there was some difficult tricks in there. And uh, so sometimes we would argue with marketing, and marketing was right. I got well, <laughs> sometimes they were crazy and sometimes they were absolutely right. And we were crazy. There was a lot of crazy people at Atari, but I think, you know, it, it yeah. takes some crazy people to make breakthrough entertainment. Yeah, yeah. Not good. So that was my trade off. I decided to make it tough to learn, tough to master, and, and tried to make a bigger game. And it was my second million seller. So that was very cool. Crazy. It's incredible, isn't it? And is it true? I mean, this is what I read through the internet. Is it true you had a, a bullwhip? Well, it depends on the game. Uh, oh, that is absolutely true. <laughs> Do you still own that bullwhip at all, or is that, is that long gone? Uh, I actually updated it. Someone gave me a replacement bullwhip, because that <laughs> one was like totally messed up. But yeah, I did go out, and I got uh, a, a nice fedora hat yeah, yeah. and a bullwhip while I was doing Raiders. And I would walk around the hallways, and I, I practiced with the whip enough that I could crack it pretty loud. I mean, I could yeah. make a pretty good crack with the whip. <laughs> And so sometimes people, especially like marketing <laughs> would be sort of wandering out engineering and every once in a while I might sneak up behind one of them and crack the whip. And it was like a gunshot. I mean, it was loud. And they would really jump and startle. <laughs> That's funny. It was kind of funny in a malicious way, but it was, uh, but the best moment with the bullwhip was probably, uh, you know, occasionally there would be a news crew. Right. That would be on on site because a lot of uh, local news channels, they like to go to Atari and say, hey, what have you got for us? What's new at Atari? It was always good filler, you know, if they had an extra few minutes at the end of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so I was walking around with the bullwhip, <laughs> and I walked into one of the labs, 
and there happened to be a news crew there. So there they are, and I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> and they saw me with the whip, and then suddenly here comes the camera, and the person with the mic runs up to me, and they put the mic in my face, and they're like, is that a bullwhip? And I said, well, yes, it is. And they go, well, what's that for? And I, just in the moment, it just occurred to me, I said, well, I said, the whip is for R&D, the research and discipline. Okay. <laughs> And I think uh, that made for a very interesting production meeting that evening at the news at the news company. But uh, wow! So that was a, yeah. The bullwhip was a real thing. I, I got into character for doing the Raiders yeah. game. Ah, good. And um, was Steven Spielberg a fan of Raiders Lost Ark? Do you ever get his? Do you ever hear his opinion and his views of the game have interest? Um, you know Spielberg. You know, I I had the initial interview with him. Yeah. which was really cool. And I, would, I, would, I worked about 10 months on Raiders. It took ten about months, 10 yeah, months okay. to do Raiders. And during that time, I think I saw him two or three times. Right. Every once in a while, he would come up to Atari. I would show him some of what's going on with the game. We would have lunch together, and we would talk a little bit. But we didn't, like, work together. Spielberg is really good at selecting people he feels are good at what they do and then just letting them do their thing. And I think that is an admirable trait. You know, he's a very smart, creative person, yeah. but uh, he doesn't seem to be a micromanager. And uh, and I was grateful for that because, you know, I don't think I'd want somebody saying, no, no, no do this, do that, do this. Do that. Uh, that would have been a lot of conflict. But uh, it was really fun talking yeah. with him. I really liked who he was as a person. I felt yes. really comfortable with him creatively. But uh, And then at the end, you know, I delivered the game. The way I delivered the game to him was I went and made a videotape of a playthrough, which uh, I don't know if anybody had ever done that before. No, that's but I did, ahead of its time, really. Yeah. yeah. And I had, uh, I guess it was. You know? <laughs> and uh, But I just thought the best thing to do is to, to make a videotape, and, I, and it was at the CES, you know, because there wasn't E3 back then. There was CES, and video games was a small part of the Consumer Electronics Show. Yeah. And that happened twice a year, in, in January in Vegas and in June in Chicago. And so uh, this was in Chicago. This was like the summer. The game wasn't quite done, but it was just about done. It was, it was almost done, and I could play through it. So I went made the videotape, got that all set, and... Uh, and at the CES, I got to show it to Spielberg. It was, and by the way, it takes 12 minutes and 35 seconds, basically, to play all the way through Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you know what you're doing. Yeah. Anybody who has spent more time than that playing Raiders of the Lost Ark probably didn't make the game. So, <laughs> yeah. Just want to put that out there. And so I watched him watch the thing. Now... And you have to remember that although I'm doing games and I really enjoy making games, what I'd really like to do is be a film director. That's what I'd really like oh, wow. to do. And so at the end of so I watched Spielberg watch the thing. Because I'd seen the tape like 20 times already. <laughs> I just watched him watch it. And he watched it intently the, all the way through. And when it was done, he looked up at me and he said, it's just like a movie. It's just like a movie. And I, I, my mind soared. I just loved it. I just thought, holy cow, Steven Spielberg feels that the game I made for his movie feels like a movie. 
That's the best thing I could have possibly heard. So I think he was pretty happy with it, but the surest sign that he was happy with what I did with Raiders was that he specifically asked for me to do each it. Of course. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, but that, it makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, before we talk about ET, I know, I know we, you know, that's a really interesting part of your career. Um, are you a fan of the Indiana Jones movies? And if so, what's your, what's your favourite one? You got a favourite? Uh, I am a fan of the movies, but I think the first one, Raiders of the Lost Ark, yeah, yeah. is my favourite. And uh, second place might be The Crystal Skull. I really love, although wow. it was so long after... I really liked what they did with that. I thought they did a good job with that. And uh, But I really, far and away, Raiders of the Lost Ark is just an amazing, from a filmmaking standpoint, because I'm a big film nerd. Yeah, I yeah. Yeah. And, uh, it's just a fabulous movie. And in the context of its time, it's even better. I think it's brilliant. I think it's my favourite one as well of the series. That's very good. Um, let's talk about E.T. then, if you don't mind, because... Um, that's Never where talked about ET, contrary to popular opinion. Well, it's it's how did you get the opportunity then to work on ET? Obviously, Steven Spielberg asked you, but was it very soon after Raiders? Was it other games that were sort of thrown at you beforehand? How how did it first come about? Uh, it came about that's the very beginning of my book, right? The book starts right. essentially with the, the dig in Alamogordo. And then yes, right yes. away, I talk about how uh, everything that led up to Alamogordo dig and that whole experience started with a phone call that I got from Ray Kazan sitting in my office. I literally had just finished Raiders. I was exhausted from just having finished Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Ray Kazar called me up. And I don't off. Ray Kazar was the CEO of Atari at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, and as a lowly bottom of the org chart engineer, <laughs> I do not get calls from the CEO very often at all. This is like my boss's 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 wow. boss. So it was very odd that he called me, and he called me up, and uh, this is like July 27th in 82, okay. and he says, we need ET. We need an ET game for September 1st. He goes, can you do it? And I said, absolutely I can, provided we reach the right arrangement. Wait, no, that's not possible, surely. <laughs> Even that time span, just trying to do the maths, that's not a lot of time. It's five weeks and a half day, because this was already like mid to late afternoon. But and you said so you could do it. That, that's, I that's... said absolutely I could do it. I had no question in my mind that I could do it. That doesn't mean I could actually do it. It just means I had no question in my mind <laughs> I could do it. Because at this point... I, you know, Yars was very successful. I had just finished Raiders, which was, and I, I, it looked really good, and people were very excited about it. And I believed I could do anything. Yeah. You know, the way I like to put it is, I'm not sure exactly what I was full of, but I, but whatever it was, I was overflowing with it at that point. <laughs> and so he said wow. five weeks, and I thought, yeah, I'll do it. I can do a game in five weeks. Why not? What's the, what was the average time to make an Atari game back then, um, from start to finish? The it's not time yeah. was six to eight months. I don't know that anybody had done a game in less than, than six or maybe five months. And uh, this was going to be five weeks. Uh, it was unheard of. It was ridiculous. What I didn't realize was that I wasn't the first person he called. The first person oh. he called was my boss's boss, George Kish, the head of VCS Engineering. And said, we need 
ET for September 1st, and he said, can't do it. Can't yeah. do a game in five weeks. Just can't have it. It's not going to happen. Forget it. And uh, and even though that's what he that's what my boss's boss told him, for some reason he still wanted to call me. So he called me directly. I I didn't know he'd spoken to my boss. <laughs> and, just, and I told him, sure, absolutely, we can do it, which was weird. But uh, and then and it and what I realized was because it's not if you think about it, it's not really a programming challenge, right? People think of it as a programming challenge. It's not a programming challenge. It's a design challenge. What you right. do is ordinarily, what you do is you start programming a game with a vague concept and you elaborate it, you work on it, and you, you bang on it, and you play and you play with it and you try different things and you eventually arrive at a game. And the idea is you're going to work for like six months and you're going to hope that at the end of that you come out with, with something fun. But you're going to keep working on it until you have uh, something that's fun. Because the goal is to make a fun game sure. and we'll see how long it takes. So what this is, is an inversion of thought, right? So instead of saying, I'm going to make a fun game and see how long it takes, what I have to say is, I'm going to do something I can do in five weeks mm. and see how fun I can make it. You switch the independent to dependent sure. variable, basically, mm. you know, for your mathematical view. <laughs> so, uh, so what I did was I really had to think about what is a design that I think I can actually accomplish and achieve in five weeks. And what I came up with was the EP game. And effectively, I delivered virtually 100% of my initial design. Of course, I had an entire 36 hours to design it, right? Because uh, when I got that call, that was a Tuesday afternoon. Uh, by the end of that call, Ray Kazar said to me, he goes, okay, you're going to do the game. He goes, that's great. Uh, there's going to be a Learjet waiting for you at San Jose Airport Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Be on it. And you're going to come down and present the design to Spielberg. So <laughs> I found out on a Tuesday afternoon that I have until Thursday morning to fly down and present a, a cohesive design to Spielberg. And it was like, but of course, if you only have five weeks to do the game, you better not take a lot more than 36 uh -huh. hours to design the game. So... And so I did what I did. I was I was confident that I could do yeah, it. Yeah, I would no never have that. sworn it's going to be a great game, but I was confident I could deliver a completed, finished, playable game in that time, and I did. We, again, I, I don't want to sound negative. Were you overconfident? Were you were you? Do you look back now and feel like that was too much to take on? Looking back, or how do you reflect or are you, are you proud of yourself for taking on that challenge? I mean, it sounds quite incredible, really. Uh, honestly, I am. I am proud of myself for taking on that challenge. And at the same time, uh, no, five weeks is not really enough time to make a solid game. Mm. I think ET is a very playable game. It's, you know, there's a lot of people, I mean, in retrospect, if you look over all the criticisms, you know, it's known widely as the worst game of all time. <laughs> yeah, it is, yeah. Some I'm not say. shy about that. I don't feel bad about that. In <laughs> fact, I kind of love it when people do identify it that way. But there are large factions of people who are familiar with the game, understand the game, who love the game. Yeah. So it has its detractors, it has its fans, as do most games. But E.T. also got a, a, a dose of media attention that not many games get. Yeah. And it had a level of expectation that's very different from what most games do, yeah. right? When you do a game like Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
Raiders is a straightforward action movie. It has a, a very credible action through line. And making a game from something like Raiders makes sense because it has a very natural progression. Yeah. E.T. is not really an action-adventure movie. E.T. is an emotional tone movie. And how do That's you true. translate emotional tone into action gaming? That doesn't really make sense. So people knew they loved the experience of the movie, expected to love the experience of the game, but had no idea what the game maybe should be or or or, or might be or what's going on with it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the other problem is, even though I only had five weeks, I still needed to do something groundbreaking. I wanted to do something innovative with E.T. Because that's just who I am. You just couldn't, because I have yeah. no time doesn't mean I can't innovate. I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say, you, you, you could have reskinned an old game or got assets possible. I'm just trying to think what you could have done maybe to cut corners, but you weren't prepared to do that. No, fair enough. No, and it was also, I mean, there's the classic line that Spielberg had said to me uh, after I presented the whole design and laid it out for him. He goes, couldn't you do something more like Pac-Man? Which launched a, a uh, fireworks display in my head. <laughs> like, what? What? <laughs> you know, Spielberg, like one of the most innovative directors of all time, wants me to do a knockoff for his yeah, movie, yeah, yeah. and uh, but I never said anything like that. I, I just explained to him we need to go this way for a number of reasons, and also it was just an innovative movie needs an innovative game. But the mm -hmm. truth is, a, a Pac-Man-like game, even if I borrowed a kernel or something like that, uh, it takes time to tune. To do sure. something that's really going to be playable, you need to tune it, and you need time to tune it. I knew I wasn't going to have time to tune anything because it was all going to be development time. Yeah. So. Uh, I talked him into going with the design that I had instead of a uh, Pac-Man knockoff. And uh, and maybe that wouldn't have been a bad idea, but I don't think I could have delivered as as high quality a game as I did in that sort of thing. I need to do something that I felt was, was simple, was tunable within the time that I had. But so I do, I am proud of what I did. Mm. I am happy with what I delivered in that time frame. I also believe it's not enough time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think if I would have had another week, uh, I could have made a significantly uh, cleaner game. Sure. Although there are a lot of things in the game that were there intentionally that people thought were bugs that were not bugs. What I didn't count on was that Jerome, you know, my friend who yeah. passed away a few years ago, actually. Sorry to hear that. So, yeah, me too. <laughs> it was, yeah. He was a very cool guy and my friend for many, many, many years. Yeah. But uh, he did such a great job with the graphics that that was one of the problems with the game. Because the graphics were so realistic to people on yeah. a from what they're used to on the 2600. Yeah. But I think they expected things to work like actual physics might work in the world. So if you touch a well with your head, ordinarily you wouldn't fall in, right? You should touch it with your feet to fall in. But... In gameplay, it's just, well, if a pixel touches a pixel, that's part of the gameplay. And I adjusted yeah. the distance between things to make it challenging to navigate the game. And that was part of the gameplay. That was because I needed some gameplay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and so people didn't take it that way. They looked at things that were actually the way they were supposed to be. And people thought it's a bug in the collision detect. There's no bugs. There's no bugs in the collision detect of ET because it's all hardware collision detect. It's all there. Yeah. So, but, you know, the fact is, it's both true that I'm happy with what I delivered, I'm glad that I took the challenge on, and it was not enough time. And, you know, it's not a great game. I think it's a good game, it's a solid game, it's a complete game. Yeah. 
but uh, but I don't argue with players uh, if they say they don't like something. You know, I never yeah, yeah, argue yeah. with a player who says they don't like it. What's interesting about ET is for all the people who talk about what a horrible game it is. What I always ask people is, "Oh, have you played it?" And <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how many people want to tell me it's a horrible game but have never played it. Yeah. So that's interesting. But the whole story is right here, right here. I spent was. years creating it because I yeah. I wrote this book because I did not want to make the mistake. It took me two years of writing to do this book, and that was on top of a couple of years of collecting notes and organizing thoughts and things like that. Because a lot of times people or even publishers or people wanted me to cut this short. They wanted to say, just, why don't you just finish it off, get it done? And what I kept saying was, I'm not going to make the mistake with this book that I did with the game. Which would be ironic. Yeah, I just wanted to make it good. I think it's a real, I'm, I'm very happy with this book because I think it does tell a lot of stories, a lot of uh, behind the scenes stories, a lot of mm -hmm. secrets revealed about what went on at Atari and why the video game market crashed in the United States yeah. in the early 80s. And it, it wasn't just because of a lot of crap. That was a major contributor. But it was really <laughs> about the attitudes and the infighting and the things that went on about people who don't really know how to manage entertainment managing entertainment and it was uh, and that was a problem and it also covers my life moving on to things like all my other careers i have other jobs in video games what it was like getting out of games for over a decade and then coming back in and seeing the difference between what gaming was and what gaming had become and ultimately becoming a psychotherapist which i'm now a practicing psychotherapist in california uh, and a lot of people think what you know how does a programmer become a psychotherapist it just seems like an odd transition and to me it wasn't really it made a lot of sense because the way i look at it is you know programmers and therapists were all systems analysts right it's yeah, just yeah, that yeah. i moved on to a much more sophisticated hardware in the human brain but uh, another major reason that i became a therapist is a lot of people will attest is that I did feel on some level I had created a tremendous amount of depression and trauma with the ET game. Yeah. And so I felt I wanted to do something to try and address that and take care of it. <laughs> and so I'm, that's when I wrote this book. It's Once Upon Atari, How I Made History by Killing an Industry. And it is available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble and uh, Vivlio and uh, YouTube. And if you want, you can go to the Once Upon Atari website and get an autographed copy of this or my DVD, my Once Upon Atari documentary series, which I did uh, oh, wow. back in uh, 2000. I didn't know. I didn't know there's a documentary. I'll be checking it out. Howard, I, you've been through so much. Um, I wanted to ask actually, really briefly, when when ET was launched, uh, launched to the public, and it got that huge backlash, um, and you were accused. I don't think it's fair, but you were accused of almost destroying an industry. Was that a lot to take on your shoulders back then? You kind of hinted earlier that it was. It must have been quite traumatic, that all that on one person's shoulders. Or did you just think it's a load of rubbish? Or how was it back then? Um, I mean, it's a, really, it's a really good question. And it's an interesting question. And so there's a number of ways that I come to this. Okay? Yeah. I mean, one thing you have to consider also is that the idea of worst game of all time didn't occur until there was an all time. When I did ET, it was still the dawning of video games. There yeah, was no all-time. So everything was a newie. There were no oldies, mm. right? 
And so, and the concept of worst game of all time didn't happen until into the 90s and didn't really gain steam until the internet really started becoming a thing, which was about mid-90s to late 90s. So it was a long time after I did the game before I really started to face this kind of criticism. Sure, yeah. But when it came out, uh, it stung a little at first. But to tell you the truth, the way I tend to deal with adversity is frequently with reflection and humor. Yeah. You wouldn't know it to talk to me, but I'm a fairly amusing individual. <laughs> <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> and so what I would tell people, because this is the way I felt about it, was, um, you know, there are, people would tell me, oh, it's not really the worst game. It's not really the worst game. And I agree. There's no way that E.T. is actually the worst game ever done on the VCS. There were some horrible, horrible games that were done on the VCS. But I prefer it when people do call it the worst game on the VCS. I really do. I like holding that badge. Because first of all, it's a distinction. Yeah, that's true. And secondly, uh, I, I did Yars Revenge also. And Yars Revenge is frequently cited as one of the best games on the 2600 by far. Yeah. So as long as E.T. is the worst, I have the greatest range of any designer in history. Wow, and I'm yeah. very proud to hold that distinction. So that's yeah. one way that I've learned to deal with it and to uh, accommodate it. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, are you a fan of the E.T. the movie now, or do you went do you watch, watch that and go, I just can't, I can't. It brings up too many memories, or how do you? Oh no, do you, I don't have any negative associations with it. I love the movie. I've, yeah. I've watched it recently. Uh, yeah. It's just a fun movie. It's a beautiful movie. It's it's a very touching. And when I watch that movie, I don't have that association. I don't okay, have any negative association with it. The movie that's hard for me to watch sometimes is uh, Atari Game Over. Which I was going to ask that, yeah. The movie about the dig, right? Because <laughs> um, it's not that it's hard to watch. I mean, in some ways, that movie was a real vindication. I think it was a real, it was one of the first times I've heard a real true telling of the whole mm. circumstance and everything that went on. It really tells the truth about the whole situation. But there's a part in the movie where when they, the games come up out of the ground, and, you know, one of the great things about E.T., remember I told you I always want to be groundbreaking, I always want to do some breakthrough yeah. stuff in every game? Yes. And even with E.T., E.T. was the first game that had a three-dimensional world that you played on, right, because you're on a cube. Nobody else had done that before. It also is one of the first games, I think, that has context-dependent power-ups. Right? Think about it, you go to different zones to have different yeah. powers. I don't think people had done that in a game before. Mm. So there were some very significant new things that I did in it. But the thing that was really significant was when they actually found those games at the dig, what I realized was that my ET game had, had broken ground in an entirely different way that I had never anticipated before. It literally came up through the ground. Did you know about this documentary was in the works? Did you know it was happening? And I mean, uh, I didn't at first. That's another thing. I actually go cover the whole thing with yeah, that, yeah. the making of that movie in the book. And it's like, I, I had been getting whispers of it. Every once in a while, people would say, hey, there's some people making a documentary. This thing's going on. Have they talked to you? Have they talked <laughs> to you? People from all over the web were emailing me. Saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you heard about that? I hadn't. I hadn't heard anything. And then one day, finally, Zach Penn called me up, who's the director. Yeah. And we chatted, talked, and then we talked some more. And then they started to shoot interviews with me. And then and it became a bigger and a bigger and a bigger story. Nice. But the thing is, when I watch that movie, there's a point at the end where they find the game. And then they want to know what my reaction is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually get very emotional. I get emotional now just thinking about it, to tell you the truth. 
because, and when, every time I watch the movie, I get choked up at exactly the same place. Because yeah. I do relive that. Because what it meant to me, see, I look at, one of the ways I look at games is as a piece of media, right? It's producing a piece of broadcast yeah. media. Now, you understand broadcast media, right? Yeah. We're doing a podcast, right? Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> and it's, the way I look at it, the goal of broadcast media, like when it, and it, if it's really good, what it does is it informs, it entertains, and it generates social discourse. I think that's about all you could really ask of a piece of broadcast media. Yeah. And what I saw in that moment when this game came up and there were hundreds of people gathered around cheering and excited crazy. and going crazy. And what I, in that moment, I realized here's this thing that I did over like well over 30 years before. Yeah. This 8K of computer code that I had written. And look at, it's still generating excitement and news yeah. and entertainment. And there were people from all over the world covering this event. I mean, it was still a topic. It was still there. and People were excited. And, and it was this big focus. I realized something that I did that long ago is still entertaining people. It's yeah. still creating experiences Amazing. for them. And it was overwhelming to me because I thought as a producer of entertainment, I felt I truly succeeded in this yeah. instance. And that was deeply, that was deeply meaningful to me. It still is. It's a great so, documentary. I have to, I really enjoyed watching it. I think it's, it's very well made. Did you believe the rumors? I know obviously the rumors turn out to be true that, a lot of your games and other games were initially buried there, or a lot of people thought it was a myth, an urban legend. But did you actually have a? Did you know already they were where they were buried or not? I did not. I never believed it. I oh, never yeah. believed. It. I always thought it was absurd. Yeah. If you think yes. about it, so Atari was a company that was hemorrhaging money, that was really in the downturn, was yeah. desperate straits, and it cost to take a bunch of inventory out into the desert and bury it and cement it over and run tractors over it at the time with the Teamsters and unions and things like that, that's expensive. That costs a lot of money. So if you have all this stuff that's that worthless and you're going to spend money to get rid of it, why not cannibalize it and use the resources to make new product that might sell? It just seemed like an absurd thing to do because the legend was that they had buried millions of ET cards. The truth of it that got exposed was that it wasn't just ET cards. Yeah. It was all kinds of cards. There were yeah. cards of every kind. In fact, all three of my games were there ah. and, and every other game. So it was a warehouse dump. They were clearing space out of a warehouse to make room for something else, and that's what they were doing. So the, the legend was both right and wrong. There were ET games there, but it wasn't about hiding ET. It was sure. about emptying a warehouse. Yeah. Have you got a copy of one of the games that's come out from the landfill? Have you? Actually, yeah, good. Because they're quite, they're worth a bit of money, now, aren't they? I, I believe. Uh, they probably are. I can't help thinking that one that was actually owned and autographed by me would even carry more weight. <laughs> I'm, but I'm not selling that one. I'm holding on to that no, one. That one I have that. in a little. That was given to me by the production company in like a shadow box, and it's just really nice. And so mm -hmm. I hang on to that. Well, I love the honest. How do you? Some people do accuse you of almost ruining the uh, industry, the video game industry in the US, which which I know we've, we've touched upon already, but that's that's rubbish, isn't it? You, you, it's, you, you, what's the main reason, do you think, that the industry did really fall down quite a lot in the US and sort of come back with Nintendo and Sega? What's your personal opinion? 
Well, this is something that I go into quite a bit in the book, right? Is what <laughs> yeah. really caused the crash. And it was not E.T. Nice. E.T. did not ruin the industry for mathematical and analytical reasons I go into quite elaborately. But what did, I mean, I have multiple chapters that cover exactly what happened and all the stories behind yes. some of the things that went on and what it was. And some of them are really funny and some of them are really scary. And some really? Of them just, <laughs> you just can't believe this happened. But uh, as a simple, you know, the way to summarize, like a lot of, if I had to summarize it in one line, yeah, I would say the thing that really caused the video game crash and killed the industry was that it was the first first life cycle for a video game console. It was the first product life cycle. Yeah. And in the first product life cycle, there's a lot of mistakes people make because they just don't know any better, and they're finding their way in the dark. And if you yeah. think about it, what happened was every subsequent console was much better protected, much better licensed, much better organized. Legally, they were they were structured better. And it was all standing on the shoulders of Atari, yeah. who were piled-drived into the ground, so it was easy to stand on their shoulders you know, from the mistakes <laughs> that they had made. And so, you know, it's the first Penguin thing. As Seamus Blakely likes to say, this, the first Penguin. There's someone has to be the first one, and that's the one that gets eaten by the seals. And while the seals are distracted by that one, the other penguins get to go and eat their fish. Yeah. And Atari was the first penguin. And with E.T., I was too. We're a bit of a weird question. I don't know if you – this is more of a hypothetical question. But if the video game industry did crash, like some people thought it was happening, and, and that was the end of video games, what sort of world are you living in right now? Have you ever thought about that? It's such a weird question, but – that's an interesting question because I never considered that possibility. Yeah. Even when it crashed, and a lot of people said, "Oh, video games were just a fad." I knew, I knew for a fact that was not going to be the case because yeah. uh, what we were doing at Atari was we were we were pioneering a new medium, right? Interactive entertainment that's done on a television is something so profound, and. Uh, people didn't know what it was going to be. The idea of VR, the idea of augmented reality, uh, the idea of uh, interactive simulation. All of those things were pretty new things that were really pioneered in the video game industry or made practical in the video game industry. Uh, and these are huge contributions. And I didn't see all of the things that yeah. the implications of it, but I knew that this was too big to suddenly yeah. go back in the box. There's yeah. just no way. Because even while we were at Atari early on, they were already using video games for things like rehabilitation, uh, for dexterity training, for training uh, people to do different kinds of jobs and things like that. I mean, it was, it was already leaking out of entertainment into practical application. And things that do that generally don't disappear yeah, yeah, very yeah. quickly. No, I, and I, so I, I, I never was worried it was going away. Can I ask a bit of a personal question? Did you choose yeah, to leave? Absolutely. Uh, but I don't want to offend you, but did you did you leave the video game industry after ET because of the failure of the game? Were you not pushed out, but was it the crash that happened? Because you left the, the industry for a bit, didn't you? Is that fair? Absolutely, I did. And uh, one, of the, one of the reasons that I made uh, the Once Upon Atari documentary and ultimately wrote this book was to get things right in my head with it. Because Atari yeah. as an experience was an unbelievable thing. And sometimes when you have an intense, remarkable, or even traumatic experience, 
there's good traumas and bad traumas, right? Yeah. <laughs> all kinds of ways to look at that. Uh, it took me a while to readjust because Atari was not reality. Atari was, was very far from reality. And I came from reality into Atari, really got interested in the non-reality of it. But always, there were people who just out of school went right to Atari. And I always pitied those people. Because uh, yeah. those people never got a taste of what real corporate <laughs> reality is before Atari. And if you walk out of Atari expecting other places to be like Atari, that is a sad place to live you know, for yeah. a while. Because yeah, yeah. it's not going to be that. But I had to mourn the loss of Atari. So, I mean, I took some hits for the ET thing and stuff. But, I mean, people who were really industry insiders knew what the challenge was. And yeah. one of the reasons I did ET was for the challenge. I just thought, this is an amazing mountain to climb, and I wanted a challenge. So yeah. that's why I did it. But uh, I don't think it killed my career, but also I like to do new stuff. I like mm. to branch out in new things. Like I said, I've done like five, six different careers. And uh, every once in a while, I need to reset. I need to go and do something fresh and something different. And after Atari, I needed time to get right, first of all. And after that, the next thing I did was uh, get a real estate broker's license and started <laughs> practicing real estate. And I hated that. <laughs> and then I got back into computers and I started doing networking and uh, I worked on compilers even. Uh, I did video display stuff. And I started, got to the point where I was much less creative in what my job was. So then I started writing and I started doing photography yeah. and I started yeah. doing uh, video production. But I started to work two jobs all the time because I knew from Atari that what Atari did was enabled me to explore both the technical and the artistic side of me because I have both. I'm a very right, left, brain balanced person in an odd way, right? Most people lean one way or the other. Yeah. I really need both. When I, when I get too deep in technology, I need an artistic side to pull me back out. Sure. When I go too artistic and stuff... I like to get regrounded back in some kind of a tech or solid, you know, physical thing. And so Atari let me really do both. Atari was a great balance of the two. And it took me uh, over two decades to find another opportunity to do that. Even when I went back into video games, I realized video games, video game production after Atari got into larger and larger groups and teams. Yes. And it really had lost the aura and the magic uh, for me. Mm -hmm. that uh, work of authorship holds. And so, but finding psychotherapy. Psychotherapy yeah. is something that also requires both a technique and an artistic aspect to it. And it really has reached me on that level and satisfied me. So mm -hmm. this was, coming to psychotherapy was actually a returning to doing one job that satisfies me overall in a, in a very complete way. And, uh, and in some ways, it was a coming of full circle that's kind of interesting. Because with gaming, gaming has kind of come full circle. Gaming was originally one screen game, and then it got bigger and bigger and bigger. And console gaming with the huge teams and all of this stuff. And yeah. now with handheld games and app-based gaming and stuff like that, yeah. you now have the possibility for an individual or a very small team to actually create a game once again and do it. So gaming has come back around to a single screen, you know, how high is up kind of game experience, <laughs> in addition to the monolithic console game, right? Yeah. And, and I've come full circle, too, because the way I look at it is back at Atari, 
what I did was I entertained nerds, right? But now what I'm doing is I'm literally making their lives better. Yeah, of course. Because uh, I do work a lot with uh, high-tech people and super intelligence. And it's, uh, it's just incredibly gratifying work, and I'm, I'm just very pleased to be doing it every day. It sounds amazing. A psychotherapist, what an incredible career. Um, I, I, I don't know if this is a bit of a weird question, but have you ever treated any patients that have recognized you and said, I used to play your game as a kid kind of thing, or is that you keep it very separate? Uh, you can't, com with my web footprint, you can't keep it totally separate. <laughs> like, yeah. And absolutely, I've had, I've had people who come to me because I did the video game. Oh. Uh, I'm very good. I can I can work with a lot of teens. Like some therapists are having trouble connecting with teens, but the fact that I was a video game developer uh, gives me uh, some real access or cred with uh, yeah. with teens in some ways. So that's nice. But I prefer working uh, also with adults and things like that. But there are people who I run into now who don't know initially, and then at some point they look at my website. It's like, oh, <laughs> you made the oh, I I love those games. I enjoy yeah. playing those games. And occasionally, you know, people go, E.T., that's why I'm here. That's great. That must be brilliant. Um, let's talk about your book for a bit more. I know we mentioned it a little bit before, but you, is it something you've always wanted to do? Is it in the back of your mind for many, many years? It's, you said it took you two years to, to get it finished, but was it always something you thought you had to do? Uh, it was always something I felt I could do, especially having done the documentary. Yeah. But... Uh, it was something that everybody kept telling me to do. Yeah. Everywhere I'd go, people would go, you should write the Atari book. You should write the Atari book. Other people were writing Atari books, and they were never people who actually worked in the industry. Almost never, mm. right? You didn't see a lot of books by people who were there actually making the games and stuff because uh, not a lot of those people are writers. <laughs> and so maybe it wasn't a bad decision. But a lot yeah. of the people who would write about it, I would see this from time to time. I would see things that people wrote about it. And it, it had various degrees of, of, of presence or function or factualness. Uh, but um, uh, for one thing, they weren't always like interesting or engaging or like a good narrative. They were yeah. like history books. And a lot of them were way inaccurate. They were way off base. And what was interesting was the truth of Atari was so much more interesting and intriguing than what people were talking about it, but people didn't know. People didn't yeah. know the behind-the-scenes machinations, and most of the people who did weren't really talking for a long time. And so at one point, I just thought, i got to do this. Yeah. People, you know, had always been, I mean, yeah, we need literally to know for truth. 20 years, mm. 20 years, people have been saying, you should write the Atari book. And I kept saying, well, I don't know how it comes out yet. And after the Atari game over, a movie came out, and I saw that, and I realized that made me feel complete enough with the story that yeah. I felt I could now pursue it and, and write it. And so then I sat down to do it, but I was working my practice full-time and a lot of other things. Those were part of the reasons why it took a couple of years to do. And also, when you're writing a memoir, when you're really writing uh, about your life, you constantly have this struggle of, should I really say that? Should I really tell the truth yeah. about that? Do I really <laughs> want to do it? But I finally just came to the decision that if I don't tell the truth, there's no point in doing it in the first place. And Good. so I kind of yeah. let go of that because I put a lot of stuff in here that, you know, it's interesting stuff, but a lot of people might read it and go, wow, uh, if I had done that, I don't know if I would write about it. <laughs> so yeah. There's a lot of that in the book. 
So you're being, you put your, yeah, your whole life on the pages. Do you, do you think there's any stories that might upset other people or do you, are you happy how it's all come out? Or? I know there's some stories that upset other people for sure. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, another thing that's interesting is that some of the people, there's a, several of the people that I talk about in the book are dead. Yeah. <laughs> people yeah. who died during the writing of this book because it took me about four years to really go from, from serious concept to delivery. Uh, in that four-year span, in my peer group, you know, Lord, you're going to yeah. catch a few flies, as they say, right? You know, it's yeah, like yeah. there's a number of people who are talked about in the book who who did die during the writing of the book. And uh, to be perfectly honest with you, as that happened, I felt freer to discuss their uh, yeah. the things going on with them. And there are some cases where I did protect the names of people. But uh, there's plenty of times where I did not protect the names of people that I just call them out and this is what they did and that's the truth. Well, I haven't, I'll be honest with you, I haven't read it yet, but it's, it's on my, I, I want to get it now. <laughs> Once Upon a Sorry sounds amazing. I've seen some good reviews. People have spoken about it very positively on, on social media. So, uh, you know, I, I can't recommend it myself, but I know that a lot of people love it and I'm definitely going to get a copy of it. So awesome. I can't wait. I mean, it's a story that, it's one of those stories, <laughs> the E.T. story, and it, it needs to be told properly and no, you know, it's got to be from the person's, from your mouth, really, to give it the proper Probably. Well, and it's a real narrative. It's a yeah. whole narrative story, which is one of the reasons it took so long to write. This is my fourth book. All my other yeah. books were written much more quickly, but uh, they were they were more straightforward topics uh, to really try and put this out this way. I, I just had to tell the story. I had to tell it my way, and it meanders. It goes in a lot of different directions. There's it's it's got a an, a very unusual timeline. So some people find that interesting. It has a chapter zero for a lot of nerds and stuff who will appreciate that. Nice. And we don't start with chapter one. <laughs> and it also has a whole section on nerd culture. Because for people who feel, because this book is written for people who do not understand technology or who are not that familiar or who have difficulty communicating with or understanding programmers, uh, geeks, and nerds, as, you know, as we're known. And uh, I tried to make that world a little more understandable and open. So... Uh, I think that the people, some of the people who are really enjoying it are the people who are not connected with technology. People who are into gaming yeah. Yeah. love it. Everybody says if you've had anything to do with video games, it's a must read for you. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to reading it. I do. I really mean that. Um, do you have any, so other, any other projects in, in the pipeline? Any other games you work? I know you mentioned the, the sequel possibly to Yars Revenge, but any, any other things you're working on right now? Uh, no, mostly right now I'm just uh, taking a break after having finished the book. Uh, yeah. Probably going to put out an audio book. I'm going to read the audio book. Oh, nice. And uh, and beyond that, I have some other books. Like I'm the Silicon Valley Therapist, I'm known as. So my next book will probably be, you know, the Tales from the Silicon Valley Therapist. And uh, something more along the lines of here's what life is like. Sounds brilliant. I meant to ask this earlier, actually. Just, we're just wrapping up the interview now. But... um. Did you ever start working on any video games while at Atari that were even just initial ideas or development stages that you never finished? Well, beyond that, I did. Well, I mean, my fourth game, yeah, which was called Saboteur and was occasionally co-opted for the A-Team, was a game. That's the game that took the longest for me to develop and took oh, the wow. long, and it's the it took the longest to be released of any game I think in history. Because so I have the fastest game and the slowest game, <laughs> and both of them. Because I did a game that was mostly complete, 
yeah. by the time, and Atari was crumbling at the time. And I had done it as an original game called Saboteur, and then they got the A-Team license, and so we converted the game to work under the A-Team license. And then they said, no, nah, we're not going to go with the A-Team license, so we switched it back. And then they said, well, maybe we will go with the A-Team license. And then Atari died. And Atari, you know, basically got sold out and we weren't going to release any more games. So yeah. it kind of got shelved at that point. But it, the game was virtually done. The only thing I hadn't done, unfortunately, was put a signature in. But oh. I did use Yars as one of the primary graphics in the game. So it does have a Yar in the game. And this game was dug up and actually released uh, about 20 years later. Right, wow. So this is a game that I wrote in 83 and 84 that was released in like 2004, 2005 oh. and ended up on the flashback system. Right? Yeah, so yeah, of course. So it was actually yeah. published 20 years later. So I did, I did a 2600 game that took five weeks to release and I did a 2600 <laughs> game that took 20 years to release. So I've got, I've got the bookends on that one too. That is amazing. Um, I've got two final questions. If if your story, um, how it was made into a movie, and I think it could be, to be fair, your sort of crazy time at Atari, have, which actor would you most like to play you? Who do you reckon would do a good job? You know, that's a that's always a tough one because, you know, I'm tempted to say, you know, first, I always, my first thought is always George Clooney, but I don't know if he's going to play like a, uh, a young Howard. <laughs> But and Scarlett Johansson would probably be a good answer also because you can't go wrong with Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know who would play me. I think it was very interesting. They did in uh, the the angry video game nerd did a movie where they did yeah. have someone who was playing me as a young guy, and I did get a chance to have my picture taken with him once. I was standing <laughs> next to him. It was a lot of fun, and he actually did look a little bit like me. So if they dig this guy up. There you and, go. Uh, he might be a really good choice for it. But uh, I don't know. One thing I have learned as a writer yeah. is there has been talk of making a movie of this book. And so, oh, wow. Absolutely. And so one thing I have learned, though, with previous things, like because I've had movie people approach me about the Once Upon Atari documentary series. One yeah. thing I've learned is that anybody who wants to buy the property from me does not need my input in terms of whatever they want to do <laughs> to make the movie. So I'm comfortable with that. I understand that concept. So I have no idea who would play me. Yeah. and uh, But I'm interested to see who it winds up being. Oh, I'd, I'd watch that. You'd, you'd hope there'd be a movie then. That'd be great, wouldn't it? I think that'd be an interesting story. That would be story. very cool. I mean, if you read the book, you'll see a, a lot of people who have read this already are telling me, well, I really want to see the movie. This is <laughs> going to be a movie, obviously. So... <laughs> Oh, I'd love to see it. Um, my final question, thank you so much for your time today. I really do. It's been such a great chat and you, I love your honesty. I love the story about your, you know, relatively short career, but um, unbelievable career in gaming. It's really quite interesting. Um, again, a bit of a wacky question, but if you could share a few drinks of any video game character, who would you choose and why? Uh as a therapist, I think I would be very interested in sharing a drink with Sonic. The yeah. Hedgehog, because there is a character that probably needs to account for the uh, crazy amount of energy they have. And what exactly is it that they're taking that gives them the zoom? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> I'd be very I mean, as an addictions counselor, as uh, I'd like to know Sonic's background, you know, how did they wind up be yeah. leading the life that they do? 
I think that would be a very interesting character. That's a really good answer. I'd, yeah, I'd love to know the truth behind Sonic and his energy as well. <laughs> um, Howard, thank you so much. We'll put links in the show notes for your book and your documentary, your website and stuff like that. So, you know, I, you know, if you want to learn more about Howard and his amazing story, please check out his book. And thank you so much for your time. I do really mean it today. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it. You can tweet us at Arcade Attack UK. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash arcadeattackuk. Check out our website at arcadeattack.co.uk for lots more retro gaming goodness and to delve into our archives. Our podcasts are also available on Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean, YouTube and Apple Podcasts. Please leave us a review and a rating, we'd really appreciate it. If you'd like to support Arcade Attack, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash arcadeattack which will give you access to exclusive podcasts, interviews, and other bonus content. So, until next time, take care, and we'll speak to you soon.